Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons. My name's Sam, I work here, and it's uh, many reasons it's a very, very special occasion. One is that we have all come into the library when otherwise, for the whole of the rest of August, the library has been closed for us to undertake our big jobs. Uh, this is a technical bibliographic term for large collection management activities that we do during August, these big jobs. So, but for a special audience like yourselves, we've opened up the library again. It's also very special because we have many representatives here of the Quackett Microscopical Club, our colleagues and friends with whom been, we've been working on this very special year on uh, looking at the collections we have here relating to John Quackett. So it's a very uh, great pleasure to welcome uh, many members of the, of the club today. But in particular, I'm very delighted to welcome uh, Philip Greaves. He's a microbiologist by training and worked for 30 years in the pharmaceutical industry and in consultancy roles specializing, I believe, in contamination control. Fun, fun. Um, uh, but has been alongside this an amateur microscopist since the age of 14. Not saying how long that is. <laughs> so just the seven years ago then, yes, obviously. Um, he's been on the committee of said Quackett Microscopical Club for 20 years and has served as honorary secretary, as president, and is currently editor of the Quackett Journal of Microscopy, um, in which he's featured many times. He's honorary fellow and past chairman of the Pharmaceutical and Healthcare Sciences Society. He's fellow of the Linnaean Society, the Society of Biology, and the Royal Microscopical Society. But today, he's our star speaker in our lunchtime lecture, and he'll be telling us all about John Quackett, Victorian microscopist. Phil. Thank you, and thank you, Sam, for that introduction. Also, just want to thank Dennis Fullwood um, for putting me forward for this talk. It's been a voyage of discovery. I thought I understood and knew Professor Quackett, but I've learned so much more by putting this talk together. And I'd like to thank you for all attending and learning a little bit more about a Victorian scientist who I personally think deserves to be much better recognized. Our story with John Quackett starts in London 150 years ago. It was on the 7th of July, 1865, that a group of gentlemen assembled for the first meeting of a new microscope club, a club for amateur microscopists. There already existed a society for professional microscopists, the London Microscopical Society, but this group particularly wanted an informal club for amateurs. And at that very first meeting in July 1865, part of their business was to discuss the name of their new club. And they chose to call it this, the Quackett Microscopical Club. After this gentleman, subject of today's talk, Professor John Thomas Quackett. And it's worth just stopping for a moment and thinking, why did they choose him? Why didn't they choose somebody, perhaps a Greek philosopher like Aristotle, or dare I say, perhaps a more well-known microscopist like Robert Hooke, 
What was it about John Quackett particularly that appealed to them? To understand that, we need to go back in our story another 200 years or so to when the microscope was first invented. It was in the 16th century that the telescope was invented. And it didn't take very long after that for people to work out that lenses with different curvatures, when put in combination, would magnify not the distant, like a telescope does, but would magnify the very small. Need to refer to my notes now. It was a Dutch spectacle maker, a gentleman called Zacharias Janssen, who's most likely to have invented the microscope, somewhere between 1590 and 1600. And like any great advance in technology or science, that caused a very rapid growth in, um, in people investigating with that instrument. It became an object which optical manufacturers in the big cities of Europe, so Milan, Florence, London, made for rich gentlemen. And virtually every time they looked at something with a microscope, it was a new discovery. So in the 17th century, the microscope was at the forefront of major new understandings, new developments and understanding in structure. In London, we had a gentleman called Robert Hooke. I'm sure many of you heard of him, who is perhaps the most famous microscopist. This is actually a picture of his microscope. Robert Hooke was secretary of the Royal Society. He was also their demonstrator. It was part of his job to find things for the society members to look at at their meetings, objects of interest, scientific experiments. Robert Hooke's microscope was very limited in what it could achieve. Early microscopes, the lenses suffered from defects, aberrations. And when you put two or three lenses in combination to get a higher magnification, those defects became more magnified. So his microscope was limited to probably no more than 30 times magnification, quite low. And what Robert Hooke looked at were items of curiosity in everyday life. Here, example is, why does a nettle sting you when you rub against it? He used his microscope, and if ever you've used the 17th century microscope, it is amazing how poor the image is and how superb Robert Hooke was able to draw those images. But he looked at everyday objects. Why does my bread or my cheese go mouldy? What is that blue stuff, mould, growing on the top of my food? What does it look like under the microscope? Why does cork float? Simple, everyday questions solved with the microscope. On the right-hand side, we have a slice, a slither of cork. 
and Robert Hooke was the first to name individual cells. It took another 200 years before people understood the significance of that biologically, but Robert Hooke was making discoveries with everything he looked at. He published those in a book which I'm sure many of us have seen, Micrographia, published a year before the Great Fire of London, published in 1665. And that had a great impact on the London Scientific Society. There were these amazing structures and the book is superbly illustrated. And that drove more people to buy more microscopes and make more discoveries. A little bit later in the 16th century, 17th century, excuse me, in Holland, in the Dutch Republic, Antony van Leeuwenhoek, a draper by trade, was using very simple microscopes that he made himself. He ground the lenses. He's reported to have even smelted his own metal to make microscopes. This is a modern but fairly accurate reproduction. And for Leeuwenhoek, he used a single lens which only had very few aberrations, few defects, and he was able to achieve a much greater magnification. Incredibly difficult instrument to use. You have to get your eye right against it, and you have to force your eyelids open against it. It's not comfortable using something like that. But with that, he made discoveries beyond what Robert Hooke had seen. He looked and he found microscopic life. And his illustrations are so good, I think my laser is fading, but here we can see an organism which we would easily recognise today as Hydra. On the right-hand side, on the stem of a plant or pondweed, is a rotifer that today we could give its species name to, Floscularia ringens, if you're into these things. His illustrations were superb, he didn't draw them himself. One thing that Anthony van Leeuwenhoek couldn't do was draw. He had to employ a draftsman. On the right-hand side, he was the first to discover bacteria. And I think that's where the microscope was in the 17th century. If somebody looked, they made a discovery. They improved science. Unfortunately, that was to change in the 18th century. Possibly Robert Hooke's book was too good. It excited too many people Wonderful. Thank you. with money. And in the 18th century, the microscope really became a plaything of rich gentlemen. The design of the microscope did advance, but what people were looking at didn't. So... The microscope went into its own doldrums in the 18th century. People didn't really make good scientific advances. Fortunately, that was to change in the 19th century. Microscope went through its own mini-renaissance in the 19th century. Early in the century, those defects with lenses, those aberrations, people found a way Joseph Lister found a way to cure that. 
that made the microscope a much more useful tool and allowed magnification to increase. From about 1850 onwards, there was a large trade in London, in particular, but also in the provincial cities, of instrument manufacturers making what were at the time very expensive microscopes and really very capable instruments. The 19th century was a period where the microscope could make very major advances in our understanding of structure. I think it's fair to say that people had understood anatomy fairly well by the start of the 19th century, but microscopic cellular structure wasn't understood. That needed another advance. And if we just think for a moment, in a daily work, perhaps working in a museum like this, what would you be asked to look at with your microscope? One day it might be something like this, skull of a North American beaver. And the investigation might be to understand those superb front incisor teeth. How does their structure vary and differ to allow the beaver to chop through trees? The next day you may be delivered the kidney of an orangutan from Borneo. May have come on a ship in a bottle of alcohol preserved. Um, I should confess if there are any orangutan kidney specialists in the audience, this is actually a pig's kidney. Um, unfortunately my local butcher was just clean out of orangutan kidney when I was putting this together. Very different subject from the beaver's tooth. The next day, somebody may come in with a fossil coral. I wish to understand the structure of that. And if we think about those three objects at random, they're physically too big to get under a normal microscope. We can design or we can build a microscope to look at the surface. But when we look at, if we take our orangutan kidney, a look at the surface of that, using reflected light under the microscope, we see very little structure. And in fact, the more we magnify it, the worse it gets. Indeed, some of the early microscopists, they looked at tissues like this, and the more they magnified, I'm not sure if it comes out well on the screen, not particularly well, never mind, you see globules and the lenses that had their defects made those globules look real. And for quite a while, people had the globular theory. Everything in life was just made up of globules, little globules. It was totally wrong. They were looking the wrong way. I photographed these with a modern microscope. Even a modern microscope, without its lens defects, can't tell as much with just looking at the surface of that kidney. What we have to do is prepare that specimen for the microscope. In the case of the kidney, we take a slice of it, a very thin slice, a section, which light can transmit through. This is a John Quackett slide, a section of a kidney of a dog. Obviously, his butcher was out of 
orangutan kidneys at the time. And when we look at one of those sections under higher magnification under the microscope, we can start at long last to understand the structure of the kidney, the glomerulus. And that's where our friend John Quackett came in. I won't pretend that he was the person that invented all the techniques of how to prepare those different objects for the microscope. He certainly developed and refined many of those techniques. I personally think he perfected some of them. But what's really important, and why I think he deserves a special place, is because he communicated them. Others had done bits and pieces, but they were very secretive about their methods. John Quackett put all the methods he was aware of, all the methods he worked with, into a book and published it for everybody to be able to do what he could do. So, let's go to the start of John Quackett's story. He was born on the 11th of August, 1815. For anybody who works out what today's date is, this is the 200th anniversary of his birth. So, I hope we can all wish John Quackett happy birthday. He was the youngest of six children. His parents were William Quackett and Mother Mary. At this stage, I must just go back a little bit. Quackett is an odd surname. People sometimes confuse the Quackett Microscopical Club with something to do with the game of Quicket, best said with a lisp. It sounds as though it's a French surname, but the earliest I can trace is the family was Scottish. Great-grandfather was on the side of Bonnie Prince Charlie in Scotland, and when Bonnie Prince Charlie lost. He had to come south of the border. John's grandfather was a, a, a captain in the army. He lost his life in the Battle of Bunkers Hill in 1775. His father, William, was living in the north and was offered headmastership of a grammar school in the town of Langport in Somerset, and he became a very successful headmaster there, serving at school from 1790 to 1842, 52 years. Of the other children, I'm afraid we know nothing about his two sisters. All I can trace is one was born in 1800. Of the brothers, we know a fair amount. William Quackett was to become a local banker. He stayed near Langport and he is buried with his wife in the church yard. William and Mary, their grave is adjacent next door to William's. Unfortunately, it's now almost illegible. Apologise, it's Edward Quackett who was the banker and is buried here. William 
became a very successful curate. He came into a very impoverished parish in the east of London, turned that parish around and became the curate of uh, Warrington, at that stage a very rich and affluent town. Brother Edwin will come into our story in a minute. Reverend William Quackett, fortunately, left us with a book of his life, My Sayings and Doings. Uh, and that gives us a real superb insight to John Quackett's childhood. And it appears to be an idyllic. Dad was headmaster of a school. His education was superb. All of the children were encouraged at a very early age to study natural history. When you read the book, childhood days just seem to be spent going up and down the River Parrot, which runs through Langport, sometimes literally when there's flooding in Somerset, and shooting ducks, what Victorian boys did, or chasing down butterflies, catching beetles. It was a life of natural history. Indeed, their collections became so good that they established their own museum, what's called the Hanging Chapel in Langport. And those collections ended up in the Taunton Museum. I think they're probably now lost. It was a superb childhood, and John Quackett showed interest in the microscope from an early age. There are stories of him building his own microscope from a parasol, of all things, and delivering lectures to the local school at the age of 16 in how to use a microscope. When he left school himself, he was apprenticed to a local doctor. And then in 1840, he joined his brother Edwin in London at this place, number 50, Wellclose Square. Edwin at that stage had already established himself as a successful surgeon and as a lecturer in botany at the London Hospital. 1840 is also a, an interesting date because that's when an earlier group of gentlemen met in 51 Wellclose Square and formed the world's first microscopic society, the London, and later to become the Royal Microscopical Society. And as soon as our friend John Quackett arrives there to start the next stage of his medical career, he's taken into the London Microscopical Society and is made, or volunteers, to become their secretary. He served in that role for 19 years. It's probably a really shrewd career move. In 1840, John Thomas goes into King's College and the London Hospital to serve his medical apprenticeship. He comes out of that as a licentiate of the Apothecary Society and he becomes a member of the Royal College of Surgeons. What is a young man to do? He can follow his brother's career and become a doctor or a surgeon to the rich. Edwin Quackett kept a good table. He moved in high society. 
he was fairly affluent. That isn't what John Crockett had in mind for himself. He applied here, Royal College of Surgeons in London. I don't think that entrance that we've just walked through has probably changed in the 120-odd years, I suspect, since this photograph was taken. And the Royal College of Surgeons had put up funding for a studentship in human and comparative anatomy. That was successful, and they put out for a second studentship in that role in their museum. And John Quackett was one of, I think, eight candidates who applied for that, that post. How do you interview somebody for that post? You give them a sheep and tell them to dissect it over two days. The best dissection clearly is the best candidate. John Quackett and one other were, what I think we would call in HR terms these days, shortlisted. And they went on to a second stage interview. And the second stage interview was a six-hour dissection of the head of a rabbit. Perhaps we ought to interview people like that today. <laughs> he was the successful candidate. He was appointed to that at the dissection on the 8th of June, 1840. And he took up the post here on the 17th of October, 1840. And he was to serve in this place, the Hunterian Museum, which I am pleased to say has changed a lot since 1854, when the London Illustrated News showed off the new uh, museum rooms here. This is where he worked. And a studentship, he was here to learn as well as to do. And he served under this gentleman, at the time professor, later to become Sir Richard Owen. And I'm sure many people know Owen doesn't have the easiest of reputations as a man to be close to. John Quackett survived him. I suspect John Quackett learnt incredibly from Richard Owen. And Richard Owen, I think, from what we can read, was quite supportive of John Quackett. So at the end of his three-year studentship, John Quackett gets appointed as the assistant curator under Sir Richard Owen in the Hunterian Museum. He's also given the title Demonstrator of Minute Anatomy. And he served in that role for quite a few years. In about 1856, Richard Owen left the college pursue other interests in South Kensington. And John Quackett was then appointed as conservator of the Hunterian Museum and professor of histology. His salary at the time was 300 pounds a year. And I find it interesting, these days you can put a value of money from any year into a calculator on the internet and it will calculate what that money is worth today. 
I had estimates, depending on which website I used, that 300 pounds in 1856 was somewhere between a salary of 25,000 pounds and 703,000 pounds. <laughs> I'd rather suspect John Queckett was on the lower edge of that salary range. But it was a living wage in London. I'm sure he had free accommodation, probably free food. He was elected in 1857 as a Fellow of the Linnaean Society. In 1860, he was elected Fellow of the Royal Society. He also, during that time, married a lady called Isabella in 1846, and they had four children. And for me, with John Quecker in his career here in the Hunterian Museum, there are two things which stand out. His absolute prodigious output of work. I know people worked long hours and I know he lived virtually on the premises, but how he achieved what he achieved, his output was incredible. He undertook a series of lectures for students on microscopic anatomy. He wrote that up into a two-volume book and every subject that he discussed, he drew for the students and is published in the book. It's just one example of not just doing a job, but going the extra mile, writing it up, communicating it to others. I'll come on to the other interesting aspect of what stands out for me in his work here in a minute. He also published that all-important book, A Practical Treatise on the Microscope. That was the first book in history to really document how to prepare specimens for the microscope. A third of that book is dedicated to how to look at things, how to prepare things. It was an extremely successful book. It went to three editions. It was translated into German. It was totally plagiarized in America. That's perhaps a good thing, in a way. And there wasn't another book to equal this in terms of microscope technique for at least another 60 years. And I would argue that it's John Quackett by educating others that is responsible for many of the scientific discoveries that were made with the microscope in the second half of the 19th century. The frontispiece of that third edition shows where John Quackett would have worked when he was delivering his lectures. This is the histological theatre in the Royal College of Surgeons. He would have been stood at the front with the big microscope and his students would be arranged around in semicircles and these microscopes travel on little rails on the bench tops so you can transfer the microscope from student to student without disturbing the slide or the lighting.
The other aspect which really stands out for me with John Quackett and the Royal College of Surgeons is what he was allowed to look at. I would have thought that a college for surgery, for medicine, and a demonstrator of microscopic anatomy, you'd be restricted to human body parts and perhaps their mammalian cousins. But no, John Quackett prepared slides of anything and everything that came his way. Rocks, fossils, insects, everything. By 1846, he had prepared some 3,000 slides by his own hand. And interestingly, they weren't assumed to be the property of the museum, even though he had prepared them here. The college bought those slides from John Quackett. And that's to form the nucleus of a collection which still exists here today of over 12,000 slides. Not all of those are by the hand of John Quackett. He was obviously connected, networked, as we would say today, with the microscopic community. And if somebody else had got a slide that was of the right quality, why would he bother to make it himself? He'd obtain that slide and perhaps give somebody else in exchange some of his material. So in the Quackett slide collection, we see a range of Victorian mounts the vast majority of which are by John Quackett. The other great thing that John Quackett left for us here is a series of diaries. He wrote down from 1840 to 1845 everything he did of significance every day. And reading those diaries allows you to both link through to a particular slide, who brought in that piece of rock, how did he prepare it? So as examples, Sunday 19th of May, 1844, put many of my dissecting tools in order and then rearranged many of my microscopical preparations. Topping, a well-known commercial mounter, comes about 12 o'clock. He gives me some fossil animalcules and I give him in exchange some pieces of injection. Tuesday the 29th of October, 1844, I then assist Mr. Darwin until past one o'clock in making some points relating to his South American fossils. There's also some amusing anecdotes. Friday the 10th of June, 1842, the cat, which had been doing considerable mischief in the museum for some time past, was chased and at last caught by Mr. Gobi and given to me for injection. Not a good place to be a cat. And it is that particular way of preparing a subject, an injection, where John Quackett excelled, perfected the technique. What we're doing here is we're taking a freshly deceased animal or human body part, flushing out the blood in all the vessels and injecting those vessels very delicately so we don't burst them, with either coloured coloured wax or gelatin in liquid form and allowing it to set. We can then dissolve away the tissue and all we're left with are the blood network, the capillaries of that. That is a very educational and very informative and I think very artistic 
way of preparing tissue. Those slides John Quackett described in two catalogues, not all of the slides are in there because unfortunately he didn't get to complete that task, but the catalogues again give a wonderful description of each slide and John Quackett has illustrated them all. We have some items to look at at the back after the talk. I'm very pleased to say that some of the originals of John Quackett's proofs for this catalogue are there. If we look at some of the investigations that he undertook, not long after he joined the college in 1840, the college was offered a large collection of slides that had been made by a Dr. Todd in Brighton who'd investigate how wounds heal and particularly a lot of interest then and today in how animals like salamanders are able to regrow a limb that they've lost. Dr. Todd had prepared a lot of slides of his investigations and when he died they were offered to the college. After a few negotiations, the college bought that collection of slides. By today's pricing, quite a bargain. 1,500 slides for 150 pounds. And they were put into the museum. John Quackett worked on those. One of, his, one of the uh, main people here is to become president of the college, Benjamin Travers. He initiated, with John Quackett, a series of their own experiments with frogs and with salamanders to replicate. It was, it was the time before ethical committees and protocols for animal research. There is a story in the diary of one frog halfway through the experiment which hopped away. Can you blame it? But it was important work, understanding how wounds occur and how tissue repairs, really important medically. Oops, that went right to the end. That is my fault. Apologies for that. So healing of wounds created a lot of slides. It resulted in a publication by Travers, a book. And sadly, John Quackett just gets a small mention for his thanks. It is a Victorian book, so that thanks is in glowing terms. But John Quackett was the technician that had done the work. He didn't get the recognition of the importance of the discoveries. Being John Quackett, he kept, kept a very detailed account of every experiment, how long it took for a wound to repair. That's just one example of what John Quackett worked on here. Something slightly more unusual, I think it was in 1847 that John Quackett was here with his brother, the Reverend William, and a little letter comes through the post. And it's got a small disc of what John Quackett described as looking like shoe leather in it. And the letter said, what is it? So John Quackett rehydrated it, put it under his microscope. It was human skin. 
And when he read the letter, that human skin had been removed from underneath a steel plate, iron plate, attached to the door of a church in Essex. What was human skin doing on the doors of a church? And again, being John Quackett, he investigated further. And there's at least three churches in Essex and three cathedrals, Rochester, Worcester, and Westminster Cathedral, that have all been found to have human skin on them. Samuel Pepys, in his own diaries, gives us some clue. Then to Rochester, and there saw a cathedral, which is now fitting for use, and the organ there attuning. Then away thence, observing the great doors of the church, as they say, covered with the skins of Danes. And what we think, and what is anecdotal, is that Vikings, Scandinavians, periodically when they're doing their mischief here, got caught and they were skinned alive. And that skin put on to church doors as a warning to others. Probably the Westminster case is a local criminal. Certainly the others trace very neatly with where Vikings would have invaded in the UK. Quackett published this. I thought that when Emmy provided me with an image of a slide of human skin, that this was the skin relating to the church door. Naturally, it isn't. I put it in here thinking it was, and then I did a little bit of reading around. The slide which John Quackett has on the right-hand side, the tanned skin of Bishop the Burker. Bishop the Burker was unfortunately a body snatcher. 18... Let's just check. 1849, unfortunately, he supplied the anatomy trade, which was hungry for bodies, by suspending a 14-year-old Italian lad upside down in a well and then offering his body to St. Bart's Hospital. I'm glad to say the Royal College of Surgeons was not implicated. Bishop the Burker, obviously, please catch up with him. He was hung, publicly dissected, and obviously John Quackett is there and receives a piece of skin. Being John Quackett, that's it. Into Canada Balsam, make a microscope slide, and he's there for people to look at. Every slide, every turn with John Quackett tells a story. One that he didn't win, not every case was successful, was the Torbane Mineral Affair. Torbane Hill in Scotland was a subject of a legal dispute which went to the courts in Edinburgh as to whether the combustible material, torbanite, was coal or not coal. That had a great financial implication for the people owning the lease. John Quackett and a few others were called as expert witnesses. There were 78 expert witnesses. There was the group from London, led by John Quackett, who said it's not coal. When I look at coal under a microscope, I can see woody tissue, woody remains, and I can't in this material. And there was a group of Scottish botanists who said, of course we can find it in there. John Quackett lost the case, and they were 
shipped back to London with their tails between their legs. It, all, it was all a question of terminology, and it was all a question of which bit of material you looked at. It's now what we call boghead coal. It's a very low-value, low-energy coal. That was about the only case that I can see he lost. 1861, John Quackett is elected as the president of the London Microscopical Society. Unfortunately, he didn't want to be. His health was really failing. And he wrote to the London Microscopical Society saying, don't make me president. And unfortunately, his letter arrived a couple of days after the committee had made him president and not told him. So he became president in 1861. He only was well enough to attend one meeting. He delivered his presidential address. And it was to be... Unfortunately, one of the last things that he did. He died on the 20th of August, 1861. Died of what was called Bright's disease or nephritis of the kidney. He was obviously a respected man at that stage. There was an obituary in the Times that was copied into the Illustrated London News. Possibly of interest to us, there was dispersal sale, an auction of his effects. His wife was left not penniless. There were two memorial funds set up to support Mrs. Quackett and her children. But there was a three-day auction of Professor Quackett's effects. First day was books. Second day was... But also there was arms and armour, um, South Asian artefacts, etc., In fact, one of the famous items the head of a New Zealander with face finely tattooed. You don't find many of those for five pounds and five shillings. E even by Victorian standards, that auction was unusual. It was the Daily Telegraph that published a little report, and I'll just read it out. A sheep with two heads, a chicken with three legs, the nicely cured head of a Dayak, probably a New Zealander, from Borneo. Strange seaweeds, strange-looking fish, and viscera of foreign gentlemen who have done with them under stress of curious wounds or diseases. New flowers, undescribed birds, eggshells, feather, wood, insects, butterflies, such was the collection of curiosities that surrounded the microscopist. John Quackett's final resting place is here, the Church of St. James the Less in Pangbourne, Berkshire. I spent the best part of two hours trying to find his grave in the churchyard there. I was looking for something simple and humble, because that's what John Quackett was. I was surprised to stumble across what would have been a very expensive marble and, for me, quite modern-looking grave. The epitaph around it reads, 
in memory of John Thomas Quackett, FLS, MRCSE, etc., etc., Professor of Histology and Conservator of the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Scotland, Surgeons of England. His memory will be cherished by all who knew him and by the thousands who have profited by his wonderful, next word is illegible, of science. There is a spirit in man and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Born Langport, the 11th, 18 August, 1815, died at Pangbourne, 20th of August, 1861, aged 46 years. His wife is buried there with him. And I think that's a, a good epitaph, but I don't think there can be anything greater as an epitaph than actually that club that was named in his honour, that itself celebrated its 150th anniversary in this building four weeks ago. And John Quackett's name, his memory, his work lives on through that club. So I give you Professor John Quackett. Thank you. I must just very quickly thank a few people. Haley, who I believe is on holiday for setting this up. Martin, who first let me see the wonders of John Quackett's collections several years ago now. Emmy, who has put up with constant requests for information, emails, photographs, etc. And not here today, Dr. Brian Bracegirdle, good friend who has retired from the Science Museum and is perhaps the world's leading authority on the history of the microscope. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed. I found that talk fascinating. I know a little bit about Quackett, but I've learned a great deal today, and I'm sure everyone in the room has. What was very interesting in a little bit of audience surveying was, you know, even with such an uh, esteemed and expert audience as yourselves, there's still a little bit of squeamishness. But interestingly, with the human skin, you're all fine. It was the injecting the cat that people seemed a bit more horrified about. But maybe that says something about us. <laughs> It's all right for, you know, criminals and so on. But um, uh, if you're available, we have some questions. Yes, do you want to start? Um, I lived in Langport in 1970. I hadn't actually heard of him, but I recognised the places and Hanging Chapel. I'm curious if, it, if, if there anything in Langport, because the school you talk about is in Curious Episcopal. Okay. Just up the hill. I can't think of a school that would have been his father's school. So, so the question is, in the town of Langport, uh, what still exists relating to the Quackett family, uh, and indeed which the school was that father was headmaster? Um, certainly in the church, there are the graves of Edward and parents William and Mary. I believe, although the church is sadly locked, that there is a memorial within the church to the father William. Uh, in terms of the school, I don't have that in my mind, but after the talk, we'll have a look in the book and we'll be able to find which school that was. Thank you. Any more questions?
whether in your reading that there was any interaction between the two, John Tomes and Pettit. Could you just explain who John Tomes is? Yes, uh, John Tomes uh, was a microscopist who was interested in dentistry and all his slides were mainly ground sections of teeth. He was the father of dentistry. He was born on the same time. He celebrated his 200th anniversary. He had eruptions with Richard Owen, <laughs> uh, but he was a superb microscopist. And one, there was no idea where he got it from, and one wonders whether perhaps he was shown or had any communication with Pettit. So the, the question is whether um, a specialist in microscopy of dentition, uh, who, who worked here at the same time as John Queckett, and I know the answer is yes, but I also know there's somebody at the back of the room who is much more knowledgeable about the individual slides. Emmy has been working with the Queckett slides on a part-time basis for nearly a year now, uh, and also is a dentition specialist, kind of. Um, so yes, I suspect that, well, certainly they will have worked together. Uh, some of the slides that he prepared may have actually been prepared by John Quackett. There's a lady in the middle with a question. So, so the question is, as I couldn't find out anything about John Quackett's sisters, is that normal? that Victorian ladies were ignored, I think. Uh, sadly, I suspect it is. I find it really strange that Brother William, in a three or four hundred page book about his life, doesn't even mention his sister's names. Um, we're lucky these days with the internet and with genealogy, we will be able to find their birth certificates with time but they don't get a mention. And I suspect they stayed local and married local and lived out their lives like us ordinary people do who don't get remembered in history. Did they definitely survive childhood? Don't know. Uh, if they had, uh, so comment was they may have died at birth, um, which is obviously very possible. I suspect if they were, if that had happened, they would have been buried in the church close to, or at least in the same graveyard as the parents. Don't know, but more work and we will get to the bottom of that one. <laughs> Actually, that is a really topical question. So the question, is whether any of John Queckett's children or later relatives pursued the microscope. Certainly up until I think about the mid-1970s, the Queckett Club had as a member Captain Queckett, who was the grandson. I don't know what happened to the children, but certainly as a club we had contact with the Queckett family up until the mid-70s. I believe that there may be some people in the audience today with the surname Queckett, and I would love to meet you um, as soon as we break up and have a look at the wonderful...